I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. In today's reading, we'll be looking at Hebrews chapters 7 through 10. Introduced in Hebrews chapter 5 verses 1 through 10, it's now time to fully develop Melchizedek the high priest, well, of everyone, not just Hebrews. Paul had taken an aside from Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 all the way down to chapter 6 verse 20 regarding the immaturity of the audience to whom he's writing here with regard to the principles of the faith. Now here we are in chapter 7 verse 1 and he again takes up the issue of Melchizedek which he began back in Hebrews chapter 5. So now reading Hebrews chapter 7 verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. All right, so here's the deal. Hebrew priest came from the tribe of Levi. Prophetically, however, the Messiah must be a descendant from the same tribe, Judah, as King David since he is to be his descendant. Though technically the original priest was not Aaron at all, but rather Melchizedek, who preceded Aaron, all the way back to Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 24. And we see there that Melchizedek came out to meet Abraham after the battle. Genesis 14:18 says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, that incident in Genesis 14 precedes the appointment of Aaron, who was a Levite, precedes his appointment to the priesthood by hundreds of years. Then David, in his Messianic Psalm, Psalm 110, says the following in verse 4, The Lord hath sworn, and will not repent, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this concept was not new by revelation to Paul. It was an old established principle of Scripture that the Messiah would be a descendant of David and also a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not a priest after the order of Aaron. Then Paul describes Melchizedek in a very interesting way in verse 3 here in Hebrews chapter 7. Here's what he says. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Well, that's certainly interesting. Here we have a very detailed description of Melchizedek. Some scholars have sought to explain this away 
as simply a figure of speech. But the attributes listed in this verse are so specific, I can only assume that God incarnate is being described. Now, work with me here on this one. Colossians 2.9 says this, For in him, talking about Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I make what I consider to be a solid assumption based upon that verse and others regarding the deity of Jesus Christ. And here it is. Jesus Christ is the only physical body that the Godhead ever had. If you agree with that assumption, then Melchizedek must have been a manifestation of Jesus Christ himself to Abraham. That is, of course, unless you want to develop a doctrine that God has another human form of some kind other than Jesus Christ, and I, I personally don't prefer to make that trip with you. So if you can accept the supernatural priesthood of Melchizedek, and really, why couldn't you? Then it just makes sense to Paul and to us that the supernatural priesthood and not the earthly priesthood of Aaron should be represented by the Messiah. This supernatural priesthood, first seen in Genesis 14, verses 17 to 24, precedes that of Aaron and runs throughout the ages, the true supernatural priesthood. So you see, Jesus Christ fulfills prophecy by being a high priest as well as the king after the lineage of David. That's the point of chapter 7, the eternal sinless priesthood of Jesus. Quite frankly, I'm amazed with the list of attributes like those we saw in verses 1 through 4 with regard to Melchizedek, that there are those who still maintain that he was a mere human serving as king of Jerusalem. There is simply no doubt that Jerusalem was in existence in Genesis 14, based upon its Babylonian name, Salim, the city of Salem, one is led to conclude that the inhabitants in Abraham's day were all polytheists and they were pagans. We know that Jerusalem was a Jebusite stronghold prior to David going in and, and taking the city. Uh, instead, Paul interprets the reference to Salem in Genesis 14:18 with the Hebrew equivalent for the word peace making it a figurative reference in verse 2 of chapter 7 here. In other words, king of peace. The fact that Abraham recognized him as a priest by giving him tithes seals the deal for Paul when he mentions the fact, again in verse 4. Furthermore, Paul's intention in verse 3 seems unmistakably aimed at proving to his readers that Melchizedek was no mere human. Those attributes of eternal existence only apply to God himself. Now reading verse 5. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham, and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Here Paul uses the tithe of Genesis 14:18 as his proof 
that Abraham recognized Melchizedek as the heavenly, as opposed to earthly, high priest before and after Aaron's priesthood in verses 5 through 10. Here's the reasoning Paul proposes. Abraham, the father of the Levites, paid tithes to Melchizedek as the high priest. That being the case, Melchizedek is better. We see that word in verse 7. That priest, Melchizedek, still lives, verse 8, therefore the Levites paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham, verses 9 and 10, thus making his priesthood superior to that of the Levites. This proposition only works when we recognize that Melchizedek is eternal from this context. If, as some contend, Melchizedek was a mere human back in Abraham's day, this whole proposition makes no sense whatsoever. Now, verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed there is made of necessity, a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And as it is yet far more evident, for after that the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of the carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testified, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made perfect, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament, and they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing he ever lived to make intercession for him. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests, which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. To the uh, Hebrews, this effective termination of the Levitical priesthood is a potential deal-breaker. Why is that? Well, it's because the Levitical priesthood is an integral part of the Mosaic law. They go hand in hand. You can't void one without the other. Hmm, that does seem to be a problem, doesn't it? Well, not really, since Christ fulfilled the law, Matthew 5, 17 and 18. That's the issue that Paul tackles in verses 11 through 28 here that we just read. The termination of the Levitical priesthood and the law that mandates it. 
A key verse in this section is verse 17, which quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, and it says, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That messianic declaration by David invokes the eternal existence of the priesthood of Melchizedek. That being said, here's the question of verse 11. Why was it necessary for the priesthood of Melchizedek to be continued and not the priesthood of Aaron? Well, the answer is this. In verse 12, the priesthood changed because the law changed. Verses 13 and 14 point out that Levitical priests are descendants of Aaron. But Jesus was a physical descendant of Judah. However, Jesus is a priest after Melchizedek, not according to Mosaic law, verses 15 to 17. Then in verses 18 to 19, we get a general assessment regarding the current status of the Mosaic law, insomuch that there has been a disannulling of the commandment. Now, that Greek word for disannulling there comes from aphetesis, which means cancellation. Why has the law been disannulled? Verse 19 tells us the law made nothing perfect. It goes on to say that the bring in of a better hope did. That better hope is Jesus Christ. Now, for another contrast between the Aaronic priesthood and that of Melchizedek, we see it in verses 20 through 24. Levitical priests were not selected with an oath, but Jesus was, according to Psalm 110.4, when it says, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There is your oath. Verse 22 succinctly says, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. That word surety means a guarantor. And the Greek word for testament, diatheke, means covenant. The priesthood of Melchizedek was established by God himself with a covenant, an oath, if you will. Verses 23 to 24 address the permanence of the Melchizedek priesthood compared to the Levitical priesthood. There were many Levitical priests because they kept dying. However, verse 24 says, But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. So, now let me ask you this question. Do you still wonder if Melchizedek was Jesus after Paul made a statement like that? Verses 25 to 27 emphasize that Jesus is perfect, and he's also eternal. While verse 28 tells us that those Levitical priests were mere mortals, with their own sin to deal with as well. So as we move into chapter 8, one verse from verse 7 needs to stick in our minds. Verse 12 says this, For the priesthood being changed... There is made of necessity a change also of the law. So let's look at this major change of the law. We see it in chapter 8. Beginning with verse 1, a better mediator and a better covenant. Verse 1. Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is a necessity that this man have someone also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee 
in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with him, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. For that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Paul told us in chapter 7 verse 12 that we were in for a major change with regard to the law. To ease us into it, he begins with chapter 8 by giving us a summation of his argument from chapter 7, and here it is. Verse 1, Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum, we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. Obviously, Jesus is the high priest of verse 1. And he's seated in heaven where the true tabernacle is located. In contrast to the tabernacle or temple that was on the earth. So get the picture here. Old covenants with temporary priest and temporary tabernacle, as opposed to the new covenant with eternal priest and the true heavenly tabernacle. Verses 3 through 5 of chapter 8 go on to add that the Levitical priesthood had prescribed offerings, but Jesus made one offering once and for all. That implication is found in these three verses, but the actual statement appears later in this discourse when he says in Hebrews 10.10, 10, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Paul makes the point in verse 5 that Moses was working from a pattern when he built the tabernacle, as he quotes Exodus 25.40, And look that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the mount. That pattern, he asserts, was taken from the true tabernacle that's found in heaven. So what is this change with regard to the law of Moses? Well, it's the provisions of the new covenant which replaced the provisions of the law of Moses found here in verses 6 through 12. However, it's not a revolutionary new idea. Paul is actually quoting from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. There you have it, the terms of the new covenant with Israel. The new covenant consists of an inward law written unto one's heart rather than an external law like the law of Moses. It's a description of the New Testament salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. The complete fulfillment of the covenant for the Jews doesn't actually take place until every Jew is saved under its conditions. Those conditions will exist for the first time when the millennium begins. So while we are here today saved by its conditions, the whole nation of Israel for the covenant will not actually be saved by those conditions until the beginning of the millennium.
Paul explains that the Messiah, verses 1 through 7, is not working from a pattern of true things like Moses and Aaron, but he's working with the true things themselves in heaven. So here's the picture. The Old Testament tabernacle was a picture of the true tabernacle in heaven. The Old Testament priest was a picture of the true priesthood. Let's get a peek ahead at a verse in the next chapter. Verse 9 24 says the following, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. In other words, the Old Testament priesthood and law were temporary provisions from God until the permanent solution arrives. That permanent solution is Jesus Christ himself. Paul is telling these Hebrew Christians the permanent solution is here. So what do we do with the Old Covenant, the priesthood, and the keeping of the law? Well, look at verse 13. In that he saith, a new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. The problem is this. These Hebrew Christians were hanging on to the law of Moses. They had just a whole lot of trouble turning loose. And that's why Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. That brings us to chapter 9, where we get a look at the tabernacle itself, beginning with verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. Paul uses these first seven verses to describe the tabernacle setup and the function of the Aaronic high priest and the other priest within. He caps off this description with a reference to the activity of the high priest on the Day of Atonement described in Leviticus chapter 16. Why was it necessary that the high priest do the same sacrifice each year and every year? He gives the answer in verse 8 when he says, The way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Verse 9 tells us this, That could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. In other words, no perfection was attained in this process by Aaron and the other priests. If you'd like to read more about the tabernacle and see some pictures of the replicas of the furniture of the tabernacle, 
go to BibleTrack.org and look at uh, my notes on Exodus chapter 25. Incidentally, let's make a point of clarification here on Hebrews 9.4. The Ark of the Covenant's contents are described in this verse as being the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. That was certainly true in the period being discussed here, but later on two of these three items had disappeared out of the Ark. By the time the Ark was moved into its new home, Solomon's Temple, we are told in Second Chronicles 5.10 the following. There was nothing in the ark save the two tables which Moses put therein at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. This statement of fact is also found in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 9. So somewhere between Aaron and Solomon, the rod and the manna had been removed from the ark of the covenant. Verse 10 has an interesting statement regarding the appropriate time for the termination of those sacrifices made in the Old Testament tabernacle when he specifies until the time of Reformation. The Greek word for Reformation there, deorthorsis, is only used here in the New Testament one time, and it means to set straight. That undoubtedly refers to the moment when the New Covenant took effect at the time of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now we come to chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So what do we do about that perfection problem that was raised in verse 10 of this chapter? Well, notice verse 11. But Christ being come and high priest of the good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Well, this calls for a supernatural solution, and Jesus Christ is that solution. These verses compare the less-than-perfect rituals of Aaron and his descendants, the priest, outlined in verse 10, with the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verses 11 through 15 draw a comparison on sacrifices, animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, as compared to the blood of a sinless Jesus in the New Testament. Incidentally, the word testament there and covenant are exactly the same Greek word. They are both translated from the Greek word diatheke. Those sacrifices are incidentally found in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. The ashes of an heifer reference in verse 13 is explained in Numbers chapter 19. Now reading verse 16. Where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Where a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, 
He took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Admittedly, the argument Paul makes in verses 16 through 23 is a little bit difficult to follow, but actually it's quite simple. Here it is. Just as the old covenant involving the tabernacle and the priest was validated by the blood sacrifice of animals, the new covenant is validated by Jesus Christ himself with his own sacrificial blood. The high priest made annual sacrifices on the Day of Atonement on behalf of all the people. Christ offered one blood sacrifice, his own blood, and that was sufficient for all time. The key verse here is verse 24, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now, understand this. There is no earthly replica for Christ. Only the real tabernacle in heaven will do. So you see, the Old Testament sacrifices were pictures of a perfect sacrifice that was to come. Jesus Christ himself. And just once. Now reading verse 24. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed to men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Verses 24 through 28 here make another differentiation between the covenants, the efficacy of the sacrifices themselves. This becomes an important point moving into the discussion that we find in chapter 10. Here's the contrast. Old Testament sacrifices were offered over and over again, but Jesus was sacrificed just one time. The sacrifice on the Day of Atonement is in view here in verse 25 when the high priest offered a sacrifice for sins each year on the Day of Atonement, seen in Leviticus 16. Get ready for a new paradigm in worship. Here it is, the single sacrifice for sin, inasmuch as Jesus died just one time on the cross. Paul uses the last few verses of this chapter to set this argument up in chapter 10. A single pay sacrifice was a foreign concept to a Jew. The Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, provided that a single sacrifice simply wouldn't do. Repeated sacrifices was the standard practice. However, there was just one Christ and one sacrifice. What will we do about this dilemma? How does one reach perfection? Well, the answer to that is found in chapter 10. We'll see that there's a once and for all sacrifice here, beginning in chapter 10 with verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. 
For then would they have not ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged would have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. You simply must pay close attention to Hebrews 10.1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. That's the problem. The law could make no one perfect, but Christ's sacrifice could. Paul quotes from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, here in verses 5 through 8, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Verses 9 through 10 here make it clear that the old sacrificial system is over. In reality, many Jewish Christians kept making those sacrifices at the temple. That's one big feudal practice that Paul is correcting with this book of Hebrews. Of course, when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., that practice naturally stopped. In verses 11 to 14, the distinction between Christ and those Aaronic priests is again emphasized with his reference to Psalm 110. This Psalm 110, by the way, was regarded by all Jews as clearly referring to the Messiah. The footstool reference of verse 13 is clearly from Psalm 110.1, which says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Then there's the function of the priest. That's gone also. Jesus made the once-for-all sacrifice and put those priests at the temple out of work. In verses 15 through 18, he then reiterates the conditions of the human heart as a result of the new covenant, the covenant found in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is a follow-up to what he said in Hebrews chapter 8. It's all written inside our hearts. Now reading verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, 
and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Verses 19 to 23 itemize the process. Here it is. We are our own priest. There is no room for someone else to do it for us. Of course, Christ is the high priest who made the sacrifice once and for all. Verse 19 would have been quite inflammatory to the priest and observant Jews of that day. A commoner's entrance into the Holy of Holies? I don't think so, they would say. That authorizes, actually, believers to go where only Aaronic priests went before. And that's our promise from God. The veil of verse 20 that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies is passed through by believers through, it says, his flesh. And that's the death of Jesus on the cross. He, therefore, is our high priest, verse 21. Just as the priests were consecrated in Leviticus chapter 8 through blood sprinkling and washing, so are believers consecrated in Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 22. And then verse 23 emphasizes that believers should rest without any wavering upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. We continue our reading with verse 24. And let us consider one another to provoke into love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a matter of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, and an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth to me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but call to remembrance the former days, in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have it in heaven, a better and an enduring substance." Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after that ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul." Verses 24 and 25 here encourage positive Christian fellowship among believers. The emphasis here is that Christians should meet regularly at which time they exhort, the Greek word parakaleo means to encourage or console one another. The day that approaches is undoubtedly a reference to the catching away of believers that we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 and 1 Corinthians 15, 51-58. The terminology in this chapter has caused some folks to conclude that these verses are talking about enlightened but not saved Hebrews. I just don't concur with that. Verse 26 says here, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Now, listen to this. 
receiving the knowledge of the truth, coupled with the no more sacrifice for sins, tells me that these are absolutely saved people. Lost people could in some respect have a knowledge of the truth, but without having been saved, they would not have already appropriated Christ as the sacrifice for sins. Therefore, the phrase, no more sacrifice for sins, simply could not be applied to a lost person. So I'm convinced that this is the same scenario as we saw back in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. As a matter of fact, this discussion is a continuation of that discussion that we saw back in Hebrews chapter 6. Paul goes on to explain how the Israelites were dealt with who spurned the law. They got physical death. This line of thought continues into chapter 11 with examples of perseverance and into chapter 12 with an indisputable explanation of chastisement of believers when they sin. We see that in Hebrews 12, 6 through 8. This same chastisement of disobedient believers is seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 34, as resulting in physical death for those believers who insist on continuation of their rejection of God's exhortations. Add to that the quote in Hebrews 10.30, The Lord shall judge his people. How could Paul be talking about lost people? But what about the fire of verse 27? I mean, you'd say, ain't that hell? Well, nah. God's judgment is often expressed with an image of fire. Just look at, at 1 Corinthians 3.11-15. All the fire you can handle is right there. And it's talking about saved people in that passage. Look at the reference to believers and fire in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. No lost people there either. Hey, don't jump to conclusions. Fire doesn't always mean hell. Here it is an obvious reference to the physical chastisement that one receives when they disobey. Read carefully verses 32 to 39. Those are not almost saved people. They're saved people. So, to recap. Paul is telling these Hebrew Christians to persevere and not revert back to their sinful past. To do so will result in physical chastisement from God. I'm convinced that nobody's going to hell on this passage of Scripture. Finally, we need a word of explanation for verse 39. The Greek structure in this verse does not flow well in English without the addition of some words. Let me give you a word-for-word -word substitution, Greek to English without adding any extra words. Here it is. But we ourselves are not withdrawing to pernicious ways, but of faith to preservation of soul, meaning inner life. The redundant we ourselves there indicates that Paul is talking about himself and those laboring with him. While the King James translation perdition in that verse, rather than pernicious ways, definitely holds a little different connotation in English, I'm convinced that the context of verses 32 through 38 talk about lifestyle rather than destination. Either is a valid usage without consideration for context. It could mean either. The Greek word commonly used for save is sozo. It's not used here. Another word is used, peripoesis. The connotation of that word is preservation. In short, I'm certain that Paul is speaking of living a life of faith that preserves the inner life, meaning one's soul, in the Christian walk. This verse makes no reference whatsoever to the possibility of losing one's salvation. I'm certain of that. 
He uses this verse to introduce a life of faith, and that's the subject that we'll take up when we get to chapter 11. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.